Welcome to the Inside Out Money Podcast. Can't even recognize this place. Too many pieces of our past mistakes. Hi, I'm Maggie, and I believe real change starts from the inside out. So let's work together to improve our money and our lives from the inside out. We will explore all things money and our relationship with it. Join me each week with a rotating set of co-hosts, friends, and interviews. Let's jump in. Hello, and welcome to Inside Out Money, a personal finance podcast focused on redefining wealth from the inside out. Each week, I speak with a rotating set of co-hosts about a different financial topic to help you improve your financial mindset and tactics. And today, we have Greg, also known as my husband, and we're going to talk about rental properties. Hey, Greg. Hey, Maggie. I may not tell you this that often, but I get this specific episode requested like all the time. Every time I put out something for topics people want to hear, this is very high on the list. And I think we've only done, on Friends on Fire, we did one, and one Mike and I talked about rental properties. And it was many, many years ago and from a very different angle than we're going to talk about today. Are you excited to talk about rental properties? I am. You know, it's it's something we spend a fair amount of our time talking and thinking about. So it's kind of fun to share what we've learned with everyone else. Yeah. It's interesting that you say a fair amount of time. I guess we'll get into this, but it rental properties, like the amount of time we spend definitely like ebbs and flows. Like we'll go months and do almost nothing but some basic housekeeping and maintenance of some records. And then there'll be something going on where it like monopolizes our week, which is kind of the nature of the business, right? You can't predict it. It ebbs and flows. Like feast or famine, but kind of the opposite. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to focus most of today's discussion on how and why we self-manage our rental properties. We will get into some of the specific tactics and tips. What we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about, we'll we'll talk about it very briefly, is the financial side of analyzing if a new property makes sense for you, right? There's a lot of math that goes into that that is, I'm I'm not even sure what word, it's so unique to each individual scenario. It's hard to, without like writing a book, which there are some very good books on this topic, it's hard to, at a high level, talk about how to choose the right rental property if you will, right? Well, we'll talk about what's important to us in them, but we're not going to deep dive into the the upfront financials of buying a rental property. We're going to talk more about what happens after you own one. Right. Because I think too, there's a lot of experts out there who can give you a better picture of analyzing which property is the right property to buy. I think the value that can be gained from this podcast is more just some examples of how we've done it, what we've encountered, what we like about it. So I think it'll be a good good intro, but I think if someone then wants to take the deep dive to say, I want to buy a property, I think there's other resources out there that will give you that expert detail better than we could. Yeah. And we'll actually make a suggestion at the end of the episode of a couple of good books we recommend if you if you do really want to take, if you're really considering buying a rental property, I highly would encourage that you actually go do some some more, more than just listen to this podcast. Let me put it that way. And, and we'll make some recommendations at the end. 
Some context that might be helpful, Maggie, is giving a little overview of our rental property business or portfolio. And so we have three rental properties in total, so not a huge number of rental properties. We own one of them outright, two of them we have mortgages on. One of them I call an accidental rental because it was your first house. And so it's in a neighborhood that we wouldn't have necessarily chosen, but it's just still made sense to carry you know, maintain it and keep it. The other two of the three that Greg just mentioned, and that, sorry, and the accidental rental is the one that we paid off, which we made a very conscious decision after paying off the mortgage of the house we live in to pay that mortgage off. Again, not necessarily the best financial decision if you're doing it completely based on math, but is a very nice cash flow decision for us in early retirement. But the other two we do have mortgages on, and they're more chosen based on what matters to us, which we'll talk about in a minute. Exactly. And then we have a fourth that we property manage for your mom's. So I feel like we have four because we're managing four right now. Right. And so for us, this is diversification of our of our investments. It is a way to have some cash flow. It gives us something to, to, to do and to work on now that we're not working. For us, this has never been a goal of growing this into 30 or 40 properties, at least not to this point. So just to make that point really clear, this is a very small undertaking for us. It's the right size for us. We like being very hands-on, but you will meet people whose goal... And I've met people whose goal is to grow from one to 40 properties over two to three years. And that's not a wrong approach. It's just not our the approach. approach we felt exactly comfortable with. It's funny. I don't, I don't know that we've like actively talked about this a lot, Greg, but I think we're both very aligned to it. I don't even want to get to 10 properties. Like that. that is more than I want to deal with for, for the purpose that this serves in our life. But I may be, I mean, you hear me every now and then kind of keep an eye on properties. And I, I may be, if I was still working, I'd probably snatch up another one or two. And, and I say if, because we still have like a big bonus coming in every year and other things where I have an influx of cash that I want to invest in something. Since I'm not, I'm not as keen on bringing on another property and unless we just see something that's an awesome deal and, you know, kind of the stars have aligned on something. But I would never envision that we have more than five properties. And I, I don't know why I just don't, I just don't want to own a bunch. Like it, it, again, we, we self-manage them, which we'll get into, you know, why and how, but the thought of having too many, even though there's some economies of scale and some efficiencies there, I just, it's not attractive to me. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the three we have now is perfect. I think if there's, the right opportunity going to four to five would make sense. But I think we both agree we don't want this to be a, a really large portfolio that a lot of our assets are tied up into. Yeah, true. So Greg, you mentioned this a second ago. There's a lot of recommendations for what's the right math of the right rental property to purchase and all that. I want to talk about what we think is important in a rental property because it, it is like many things with me. It's not just about the math, but I will just mention because it's it's worth noting. There's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of people out there that will pitch you on how owning rental properties is going to get you to financial freedom. And I'm not saying it's not going to, but it's complex and it's difficult and it's super hands-on. And like Greg, like you said, it's feast or famine. And a lot of these people oversimplify the process of it and just the complexity of it. And, and the same people often point to a rule called the 1% rule, which I think is incredibly unrealistic, particularly in the market we live in. We could not find a rental property that we, that meets the other criteria we care about and that meets the 1% rule. But I'll tell you what it is so you know why we don't follow it because it's, it's, it's just worth you knowing it. The 1% rule is 
basically a quick, quick and dirty rule, a quick and fast rule that just says for a potential investment property to be worth it, the monthly rent must be equal to or no less than 1% of the purchase price. That means, let's use an example that's about the cost of some of our rental properties and the best we could do in the markets we're looking in. A $300,000 property, you're going to need to be able to get $3,000 or more for rent a month. That's a really tough, if not impossible ratio in the metro Atlanta area, which is where we live. There are some markets where that's possible. There's some smaller towns where that's possible, right? I'm not saying it's not possible somewhere. And that's great. If you're able to get that, like, good for you. That's awesome. Not realistic in our market. And I think, Greg, I think you would agree because we talk about this a good bit. One of the things that is most important to us when we're choosing a rental property is that it's close to us and it's in somewhat in our neighborhood and community just for quality of life of like, I don't want to drive an hour away to deal with something. The two that we purchased kind of during COVID, like we bought one in like 2020 and one in 2021, I think. That's right. They are both in the exact same neighborhood and they're half a mile away from each other and they're 10 minutes from where we live. So we we can't actually afford a rental property where we live. It's just too ex- it's it's too expensive for the capital. I mean the houses are on the low end 600,000 and on the high end over a million and so we can't afford that for a rental property. And the houses that we have chosen to buy, both of them, one of them we bought was it in the high twos or one was in the high twos and one was in the low threes. And your accidental rental is worth a similar amount, right? Somewhere in the high threes, I think now. Yeah. And all similar as far as the size, three bedrooms, good starter homes as yeah. opposed to houses in this neighborhood, which would be not not as much of a starter home and more of a home for an established larger family in general. Yeah. Most of the people in all of our rentals are couples without kids or with like a small child. Because again, right. three bedroom houses tend to attract couples and or people with maybe one child, maybe two tops. So yeah, of course we're looking at, is the house itself a good investment? Is it in an area that we feel like we'll appreciate and resell? And that's important to us. And what I like about you know the proximity thing too is I know that because it's close by. So the, the neighborhood we are in, I know it really well. It's close to downtown Decatur. There's a ton of development around it. And we just, I feel very confident that regardless of whether long-term it, we decide to keep it as a rental, anytime we sell it, it will have appreciated. And they both already appreciated pretty heavily in the past couple, two to three years even. Right. And again, the, the proximity piece is extra important to us because we do self-manage and we're hands-on and, and that's our approach for now at least. And so, and also when we are out of town or traveling, we have a good network of friends and family that can help us if it does involve somebody to get on site other than a vendor, which we can obviously deal with while we're out of town. They're you know near a big university. They're near a lot of great employers. Like again, we just overall look at the area and are we comfortable with the area? And I think sometimes when you're buying like out of state, that's super tricky because you're going off data and other things, but you don't, you're not like there. You don't know it. You don't have your own sense of observation and confidence in the neighborhood and in the area and just really have a really good sense of it, which matters, I think, even when you're talking to potential tenants, because we, we've, we've dealt with a lot of tenants that are like new in Atlanta. And, you know, we I can talk about Atlanta with a, a very large amount of confidence because I know the market really well. But I think the last two points really tie together as far as the 1% rule and the proximity. I think if you were going to hold hard and fast to that 1% rule, that's where people end up looking at properties outside of maybe the metro area they live in where property prices are quite as high or they look at other states. And I think that can be a great option for certain people. I think for us, again, we are willing to 
have a house that doesn't meet that 1% rule if it's within proximity to us. So I think it really comes down to what you're comfortable with and the type of portfolio you want to develop. And so for us, proximity is important and we've just never considered going out of state or even out of the metro area that we're in, really even the, the neighborhoods that we're close to. Another thing we look for is just doing some basic research on the rentals in the area. So what's the the supply and demand situation, which you can do really easily anywhere. You, you can look anywhere you want, whether you're living there or not, on Zillow. You filter it to rent. You can see what's been rented recently. You can see what's currently up for rent and you can compare it to the property value. There's a bunch of things you can do on Zillow very easily. But I'm really looking for, is there good potential to rent this? And after we bought the first rental in this neighborhood and I went through the post it, the listing it process, I knew there was a ton of demand and not enough supply for rents for for rentals in that area. And so I already felt really good about it. But if I was looking at another neighborhood in Atlanta, I would go into Zillow and I would really do a lot of research on what are the just what's the rent, what's the going rent, how's it looking, you know, what just all all of the things that you can very easily see. The other interesting thing too that you want to be careful about is like I've mentioned that we can't really afford a rental in the neighborhood that we live in. Part of it's just that the cost of homes is much higher. And just because you get a home that costs twice as much, it's not like you get you. Yes, you get a higher rent, but you don't get a rent that's twice as much. So even though we're not able to meet the one percent rule, the ratio of rent to the cost of buying the house is still something you should look at. And I'll give you an example. We bought a house that's maybe eighteen hundred square feet, about three hundred thousand dollars. We're getting right now about twenty five hundred dollars in rent in it, but we weren't in the beginning. In the beginning, we were getting like under two, a little little bit under two. Rent's gone up a lot in the last few years, and. And if I were to get a similar sized house in the neighborhood we live in, it would cost me $600,000 and I wouldn't be able to get twice the rent is my point. I would not get, I wouldn't be able to rent it for five grand. I'd be able to rent it for more than 2,500, but maybe 3,500, maybe 4,000 tops based on some actual research I've done. And so that is, even though, again, even though I'm not, I'm not, I don't think it's realistic to get to 1% in the area that we're looking in. You still want to get to the best percentage you can in terms of the, you know, cost of the property and and what you're able to get for rent. So that is important to do your research on that. And I think that, again, is why we like those starter homes. Yeah. They tend to line up well with the rent per square foot. Yeah. So another thing that I just heard on a, I just this morning listened to a podcast that Mad Scientist put out where Chad Carson came on and Jillian actually interviewed Chad Carson, but it was on the Mad Scientist podcast. He just came out with a book called Small and Mighty Real Estate Investor, How to Reach Financial Freedom with Fewer Rental Properties. I haven't read the book yet in fairness, but I am familiar with Chad Carson. He puts out some great content on rental properties and they made a point. I think Jillian actually made the point and I hadn't thought of it from this angle, but I I liked the way she said it, she's also looking for properties in neighborhoods where it's attracting tenants who will take good care of the property. So we are thoughtful about the neighborhoods we're buying into and the type of tenant that it will attract. We are trying to attract a higher quality of tenant who will take good care of the property to use Jillian's term, be a good custodian of the property with me. We expect tenants and it's in our lease. We'll talk about it to do their own yard work and to just, you know, take good care of the property, pay their rent on time, some basic things. We're, We're in 
in a relationship together and we have our part to do. We're very responsive and on top of things and we want them to be also. And so we are also looking for houses in an area where we're, we feel like we're going to attract good tenants. And again, the area we're in, there's a lot of large employers nearby. They're near trendy areas. I think young people want to live in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Because one's near the Battery and Smyrna and the other are close to downtown Decatur. Okay. So obviously we talked about financials. It's great if you can get a low interest rate. We were very lucky on the two of those properties in that we bought them during a time when rates were in the high twos, low threes. And I think both of those mortgages, Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, are like in the threes somewhere. They are. And then, you know, we I referenced this at the beginning, but obviously we want something that is an appreciating asset. So we're less concerned about that perfect ratio and we're more concerned about, is this house a good investment so that whenever we decide to sell it, we feel like we will, aside from the cash flow we might get throughout owning it, that we'll, you know, be in a good place, whether a massive profit, but at least to not lose money on it when we do decide to sell it. Okay. And then the best advice I ever heard from, I believe this is from Julian and Kirsten on Rich and Regular. And if if it's not, I'm just going to give them credit for it because I can't remember who said it. But they used to own some rental properties and they made a decision to sell them. They once said, you have to have the stomach for it. So if you want to own rental properties, you have to have the stomach for it. And what I mean by that is, like Greg said earlier, feast or famine, right? You've got to be okay with the fact that in the middle of Thanksgiving, when you're having a nice relaxing day off, you're going to get a call that there's a water leak or that there's no hot water or that something's not working. And it just happens, right? You don't get to time one thing. Like you're a landlord. Lord, again, if you're self-managing especially, but even if you're not, because big emergencies, the property management company is going to call you depending on what your rules are. And you just got to have the stomach for it. You got to have the stomach to deal with people. You got to have the stomach to deal with ups and downs of different situations that happen. And to me, that is just the best advice. So if, if you don't want to deal with a complex, ever-changing situation that involves other human beings living in something that you own and either taking care of it or not taking care of it, you shouldn't own rental properties. Go put your money in index funds. It's a lot more straightforward and less stressful. I totally agree. And I think for me, it's, I have the stomach for it because we're partners in this. And I know that <laughs> whatever, and honestly, I mean, you know, when we have issues we have to work through, we're doing them together. If our Thanksgiving is getting interrupted, it's, it's both of us and yeah, you know, it's we're our still spending our Thanksgiving <laughs> together, even if it's dealing with the rental issue. Yeah. If I was a single person that had rental properties, or if you said, I, I'm just not into this, leave me out of it. You, you do it on your, you know, that's your thing. I, I wouldn't be nearly as interested in doing it. So I think that's something to think about too, is uh, it's just, you know, do you have the, if you have a partner, do you have the right partner that you enjoy uh, dealing with these potentially stressful issues with? Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. And on that note, a partner that has complementary skill sets, because I actually, at first I was like, oh, when you first said that, I was like, oh, I'd maybe manage them on my own. But actually, I don't think I would be as interested in it because we have a very good division of labor that works out nicely. And I often forget about all the stuff that you do because it tends to be, that might just be a theme in general, but <laughs> it tends to be the behind the scenes, like financials and the paperwork and you file all the taxes and do the quarterly statements, which we'll talk about. Um, but I do all the like marketing, dealing with like customer relations, like posting rentals, screening tenants, get like all the paperwork. Um, you are behind the scenes. Like when I'm like, hey, can you update this in lease? 
piece, like you're helping to kind of like clean up the PDF and like edit the legal paperwork and send it back to me. And um, and then Greg does like all the financials. You're doing all the financials and contracts, essentially. I agree. The division of labor does work out perfectly for us. And I think it really allows both of us to utilize kind of our skill sets and they complement each other well. And there are many of the things you do are things that I wouldn't want to do. And you do an amazing job with them. I have been extremely impressed with Maggie's skill sets in the areas of leasing, customer relations. That really stood out when we were considering uh, releasing the house that I had owned and had a property manager prior to this, had tenants that had been there for six years. So we were never really faced with releasing. Well, I forgot you even had a rental property. Like I knew you had it when I met you, but you never dealt with it because you had a property management company. Every now and then you'd say something like really quick of like, oh, I had to approve some expense or something. But you were like, I mean, 99% hands off because you hired a property management company. Yeah. And because of that, it was hands off, but we weren't optimizing the rental rate. There were a lot of things that needed some updates to the house um, that needed to be done and just a lot of work around making sure the rental rates were uh, keeping up with the market. So long story short, the tenants gave notice. It was time to look at what are we going to do with this house? Am I going to sell it? Are we going to lease it? Maggie said, let me check out the house. I want to learn more about it. I'd be interested in buying in and partnering on this. I forgot about that. I that I had to buy into it too. I just forgot that it was like yeah. you owned it. And so th- we were were we married even at the time? We, we were. Yeah, we yeah. were married. It was just something that I had owned. I still had a mortgage on it. So you ended up buying half. I ended up paying off my half of the mortgage. So that's the one we we now own a hundred percent. So prior to making a decision on were we going to lease it, if so, were we going to use a property manager or take this on ourselves? Maggie did some research on comps. We went out to to the house met with the realtor who was the property manager. Man, that guy, that poor guy, like when he met me, I think he like was like, you're a pleasure to deal with, Greg. He met me and was probably like, I'm out. Well, I I, I think he has hundreds of other properties he's managing. Yeah. So for him, he's going to take, you know, the, the, the lowest, yeah, yes. the easiest path. He's going to take a rental rate that he knows is going to enable him to rent it out quickly. He gets to keep the first month of rent under the contract. So for him, the, the more quickly it gets rented out, the more profit he, you know, the less time he's spending and he gets the same amount of profit minus or, or less plus or minus a small amount of money either way on what the rental rate is. And, wait, and us, Greg, Greg, real quick, just so people know, he got his overall compensation was when the property turned, he took a full month's rent and then he took a percentage every month of every month's rent. So, th- so he got paid correct. two different ways. Yeah. The, the, the one month was for leasing it and then the ongoing percentage was for managing it over, you know, collecting the rent. What did, And what did he charge? Like 10% I think it was less than that. It was a pretty reasonable percentage. I, I don't remember. I, I think, but it was not a very high percentage. So we go out and meet with him. Maggie shares her thoughts on what the rental rate should be based on the comps she's found and what the market is doing. She also says, I would like to get it on the market before this current tenant moves out so that we minimize the amount of time that the house is empty. 
and before we completed some work that we were going to do. Correct. We agreed yeah. it needed a little bit of work. Some he suggested it too. Yeah. Some painting. And so Maggie says, I think we should rent it for this much. And I think we should get it on the market now. He quickly says, there's no way you're going to get that much. Recommends a rental rate that is a few hundred dollars less than what Maggie thinks is, is appropriate and achievable. He also says, and there's no point in putting this house on the market now. No renter can imagine what this house will look like when the work is completed. Renters don't have the same imagination that someone does if they're buying a house. You're wasting your time. Wait till the tenants move out, do your work, then list the house, and then you'll get people visiting and you'll be able to rent it out, which means the house is going to be sitting empty for at least a month, probably longer, which is a lot of lost. It would have been over two months based on the timeline to do the work and all these things. So I mean, that's 5000 plus guesstimating four to five thousand dollars in rent missing while it sits empty yeah it would be foregoing a lot of rent so as we leave maggie listens she pushes back a little on the drive home maggie says we can do this ourselves i can get this thing leased i think i can get this amount i think we can get it leased before these tenants ever move out give me a, give me a couple weeks to do this so maggie goes off starts listing it on several places i'll let her kind of talk through some of that later at the end of the day Maggie ends up getting the place leased for the amount she originally thought we could get it for. Gets it, gets a lease signed within- Two-year lease. A two-year lease signed within a week or two of listing it, long before the current tenants move out. So now we've got the higher rental rate that the property manager said was impossible to get. We've got tenants lined up before the current tenants even move out with a two-week lag to do the work. So now our downtime is minimal. It's just enough time to do the work. And as soon as we're finished with the work, the new tenants are moving in. I was sold. I was highly impressed. I just thought, Maggie, this guy's a professional. I, you know, it's cute that you think you know more than he does, but this is his line of work. And I really came to realize that, again, he is coming at it from a much different perspective. For him, having it empty for another month and leasing it for 200 less impacts his net amount a lot less because this is one of 100 properties. For us, it's a huge amount. I was sold after Maggie was able to do that and really thought, wow, I think we can really work well together as a team and let's go get some more properties. So that's kind of the the genesis of our little little rental property business and how we sort of divided our labor. Yeah, it'd be it'd be funnier too if the timing was like and then you proposed a week later. <laughs> I think you had already proposed by then. I had, yes. You this saw just the further potential. Cemented. Yeah. You saw the potential I had for property managing. Yeah. Okay. So let's, I'm going to talk about what I do on my end of things. And it, it may feel like a random list. And I'm going to try to do it in order. And then I'm going to have Greg jump in and talk about what he does with all the financials and contracts. Because I just want to give everyone a taste of like what it takes to self-manage these properties. And again, if you're not doing these things, you're paying someone else to do these things. And we may not have said it super clearly, but the reason we like self-managing is very largely related to the finances. And we we both like doing this stuff. We happen to be early retired now. And so it, it's easier to get it done now than it was when we had you know demanding corporate jobs. But ultimately, the financials are much more attractive when you are self-managing. You just, you can make a lot more money. Again, you're, you look at the rough math we just said of, you know, we're paying a percentage of the rent. And I know we didn't say the percentage, but it's because we both can't remember. 
I just want to deep dive a little on the property manager versus no property manager really quickly. I will say I have met people who have over a year or two gone from one to 40 to 60 rental properties. In that case, a property manager is probably not just a good idea. It's probably essential. And for some people, they don't want to deal with this type of thing. They have a lot of capital that they want to invest and they want to build a portfolio quickly and their time is best spent constantly looking for new properties, figuring out which properties are going to be the best. They probably, if they own 40, do develop some some ratios that they know are their sweet spot. And that's where their time is best spent, out there scouring the market, finding the right property, getting financing, moving quickly, and then turning it over to a property manager. Yeah, so you're, you're totally we're not, right. Yeah. yeah. So we're not saying there's not a place and a time. And those people probably do make money, even though the property manager is taking a cut. When you're up to 40 properties, that's a huge amount of revenue coming in. So it's all about what you want. But Maggie and I don't want that. We don't want 40 properties. We don't want that huge portfolio. We're not comfortable with that. Someday, who knows? But at this point in our lives, we want a small portfolio. And when you only have a few properties, our time isn't being spent looking for new properties. So for us, we actually enjoy spending our time doing these things. It gives us a sense of purpose and accomplishment after we've left our work. So again, there's a time and a place where property managers make a lot of sense. I think you've just got to look internally and say, you know, what do I want to do? What what am I comfortable doing? Where's my skill set? Maybe if you're new to this, you have a property manager for a year. You learn from them, you see what they do, and then you take it on yourself. So I think there is a, a time and place for them. But for us, it's just not something we want to do. And we are able to keep more of the revenue ourselves by doing the, the management ourselves. Yeah, that's a great point, Greg. We're essentially a mom and pop shop, right? We're, we're running a very, very small business here. And you're right, as, as you get to a larger and larger portfolio, it might be when you want to, based on the amount of time you want to put in, leverage a property management company, which sometimes can be a single person like the realtor that you work with who also did property management, or it could be, you know, there's some big companies that do it and it's a little more commercialized. So here is the process of what I go through when I am hosting a new, when I'm posting a rental property that is available. So we've had a number of times where, you know, somebody moves out and we've got to refill a property. And again, this is with our rental properties, but also with, we manage Greg's mom's condo that is here in Atlanta and also very close. And that's had a lot more people turning because that was a short-term rental for a little while. So I've, I've had a lot of experience doing this on all of those properties. So essentially I post the property on Zillow. It's a free listing. It, in our market, get has a very broad and large reach. Zillow does the background and credit checks for you. And the tenant actually pays that. So it's free for me to list. For a while, Zillow piloted where you actually pay for the listing and you get some increased exposure. They had a free listing and a paid one, but it literally was like $10 or $20. It was super cheap. I'd be happy to pay if they started charging again, but it's back to being free now. I post it. I you know, have good photos. I obviously some basics, like you want to have good photos, videos, et cetera. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Once I have some interest, I have a very specific process that I have honed that I go through before I will show the property in person to anyone. It is very time intensive to show the property to somebody. I have to find a time that works for both of us. We have to both get there. They have to actually show up and you'd be surprised how many looky-loos don't show up. People that are just kind of curious and they found something else and they didn't have the courtesy to tell you, whatever it is. So my process saves my time. It does not save the other people time. But I also, back to some points we talked about earlier, we are seeking properties in an area that are attracting tenants who are willing to go through these steps if they want a property because we have some good properties in attractive areas 
areas. And again, the supply and demand reality makes it to where there's not a lot of not a lot of supply and enough demand. So I make them fill out the Zillow application. They don't just have to message. A lot of people in Zillow, you can just message and say, hey, I'd like to see the property, but you haven't actually submitted your stuff for a background and credit check. So they have to fill out a formal application. They have to fill out a custom Google form that I send, which has a bunch of questions about, are they clear on the move-in date? You'd be shocked about how many people want to come see a property and they didn't read when the property is available, which is in the posting. They just didn't read it. Or they didn't see that it's furnished, like Greg's mom's place is furnished and that like it's like really big in all caps, but people don't see it. They just kind of hit an inquiry over to you. So I, I have all these kind of yes, no questions. Like, are you aware that the move-in date is this and that works for you? Are you aware that the yard maintenance is your responsibility? Do you plan to hire someone or do it yourself? Um, have you watched the video tour of the property, which I'll talk about in a second? There's a bunch of things that I want to make sure in like a simple form they have reviewed in advance about our lease terms. And again, the things about, are, like one of the questions is, are you open to a two-year lease? It's not required, but it's preferred. And I'll talk about why in a minute. So I want them to fill out that Google survey first. It's a it's a simple Google form I've created and it has a, it has a reminder link to a video tour of the property. When I email the, them the survey, I send them a very nice video tour of the property that I have made. I put together a little video. There's some nice music in the background. And I took that video when the property was clean and in great shape, right? I didn't take it when my most recent tenants are moving out and things are kind of a mess and they're in the process of moving. And when they gave me notice, I took it. You want to, you want to in general, get really good photos and videos. You don't need anything professional. You can do all of this on your iPhone or Android or whatever phone you use, but you could use photos like that for a decade, right? The bulk of the property does not change. Even if you swapped out the stove or something, it's not like you need to retake all your photos, right? People that are really interested are going to come see it later. But a big tip is just take photos and videos when the property is empty and clean and get as many, get way more than you ever think you're going to need because it's good to have them on hand. And then also take more when you have some great tenants in it who have like nicely furnished it, right? So if you're there doing some work or something or walk through with them, like get a bunch of good photos and videos while you're there. You have a right to do that. Block out any of their personal stuff, obviously. But both of those are helpful to have things where it's furnished and non-furnished. To that point, I have a good video where I'm literally like walking into the property from the street so you can kind of see the experience. I'm walking through all the bedrooms and I just have it set to music. And I use those videos. They're so helpful for people who are just curious out of town. There's a lot of reasons why that video is so helpful. And then once they filled out a Zillow application, once they filled out my Google form survey and they've watched the video and looked at all the photos, I also send a photo album. Then after that, if they, if we have had good, strong communication through all of those steps, which some people fall through and have not made it because it's just too many things. It's only a few things, but it's just too many for some people. Then that's when I will schedule an appointment to show them the property. And I'll sometimes schedule an appointment to show it to like two people at once. I don't care, right? I'm trying to, again, I'm, I'm trying to optimize my time. And this weeds out a lot of people early on. I didn't do this process the first couple of times. And I was like so frustrated that I'm like, oh, I drove all the way over there. And this person like didn't show up. They weren't that interested. They weren't clear about this, that, or whatever. I've found a lot of success in this process, which I really have honed over the past couple of years. I think it works. I think it allows you to do a lot of the front end work before you actually get out to see the property. Even your videos, I think are great because I think pictures don't fully reflect what it's like to walk through a property. But I think through the video, people really do get a good idea of how the property is laid out, what it feels like to walk through it. And so I think they're super helpful. Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, a lot of times now there's all these different technologies with realty companies now where, you know, it's got the like 3D thing and you can kind of like hop from room to room. It's super awkward. My video was literally 
literally me walking from down the street through the front door into the living room, into the kitchen, opening the pantry, into the bathroom, into the bedroom, like going onto the back deck, doing a glimpse of the backyard, walking around the house. You know, if, if there's a garage, walking through the garage, whatever it is, it's just me walking with my phone sideways, taking an actual video. It's not, you know, and it's a really easy experience for other people to consume. So it, it's a really, you know, easy, you know, you can edit something yourself in iMovie or on your phone these days. You can put music behind it. You don't even have to. So th- th- it's really easy to do yourself on a phone these days. Okay. Another thing that we did that, and I'm, I'm just going to kind of hit a list of like things we do that work well for us. We bought a lease template from Bigger Pockets for our state. They have ones that are basically cover like the proper rental laws in your state that are customized. I think we paid like $99 for the packet and it had like that, a move-in checklist, a move-out checklist, a number of forms that were helpful. And then we customized that lease. So we took their lease and then we took some of the things we liked from your old property manager's lease. We basically read every lease we could get our hands on and we took the best from thing. We would see something and we're like, oh, that's nice. And so, and we've adjusted it over time. So we had something in there that was like, well, if the property's you know, clean upon you leaving, there's no charge. But if it's not move-in ready clean as it was when you moved in, then we charge you a cleaning fee. But that's super subjective, we learned. And so other people would think they left it clean and then we're like scrubbing toilets and having to, you know, get hair out of bathrooms and things that are not clean. And it gets really tricky to charge someone a fee for some when they're moving out and it's tough because nobody wants to pay things when they're moving out or take it out of their deposit or whatever. And so we now in our leases have a thing that just says there's a mandatory cleaning fee when you move out. And that's easier. So there's stuff like that around it's your responsibility to take care of the yard and we clarify what that means in the lease. And so you can put whatever you want in a lease. I'm trying to think, Greg, if what else have we put in there that's kind of customized and helpful? I think those are the two that I can think of right off the bat. But I, I, I will say I, we've just updated the lease as we've encountered things. So as we live and learn, we will then incorporate that into future leases. Sometimes it's just to make it more clear up front. Sometimes it's changing the way we, you know, charge a fee. We are consistently kind of tweaking those leases as we learn. Yeah, learn something new. Yeah. So another thing we do with the lease is we prefer a two-year lease. And keep in mind, there's an out clause on all of these leases. And our out clause is like a 60-day out clause for no cause, which I also like because I want to be a, I should say this at the very beginning, right? I want to be a tenant-friendly landlord, right? I'm not trying to be difficult. I want to be fair. If you break your lease and I'm able to fill it fast. I'm not going to charge you the fee, the lease breakage fee, et cetera. But essentially, even with a two-year lease, you're not any more locked into things than you really were with a one-year lease. You have an out clause. You just have to give enough notice. And there is, you know, there's some lease breakage fees in there. Um, But you can write a lease to be like a two-year lease that gives you an option to cancel after one year. You can do things like that. It just saves you time of having to rewrite a new lease every year. And yes, you do, like Greg, you often will do an addendum that's an extension and so you don't have to redo the entire lease paperwork, but it's still just work to execute a new lease, right? They've got to like initial every page. I mean, it's like a 30 page document. And so anything that we can do to cut, you'd be shocked at how fast a year flies by. So anything we can do to cut down on the ongoing interaction and the chances that you'll stay are helpful. We also build a 5% annual increase into the lease. So upfront, when you move in on day one, you know that if you stay for the second year and the rent was $2,000, it's going to be $2,100. 
one hundred dollars. Then is that right, math? Is that good? I don't know. Let me see. What's five percent of two thousand dollars? Yes. Look at that. That was good math. Mm. Okay. So I'm I'm big about building in what the annual you know inflation increase, whatever you want to call it, is in the rent, and that doesn't stop you from when the lease is up saying, well, hey, the market's changed. Taxes like the taxes on one of our properties are like insane. Have just increased at a really oddly high rate, and saying, look, I've got to raise the rent because our costs are going up. Right? It doesn't you always whenever you want could come in and decide you want to have that conversation with a tenant. But I just prefer the longer leases and the standard increase. I also, this is like a little thing, but I like to do a little welcome gift upon move-in. And, and last year I sent all of our tenants a Starbucks gift card. I just think those are like nice little things. I, I just think from like a customer service standpoint, there's nice little things you can do to make people's experience in your property nice. Like when, when they move in, I give them, you know, a few, like sometimes it'll be like a Trader Joe's dish soap and some dish towels and just like a few kind of kitchen or items or some chocolate or something. And it's like a card that's like, welcome home. We hope you enjoy, you know, because this is their home, right? It's yes, we own it, but like this is where they're settling in and gonna, you know, live and all that. Oh, hey, Greg, what we didn't talk about on the leases real quick is pets. So I originally was very like, I don't want to have, like, I just would prefer to have like no pet rentals. That's really difficult. Just so you know. Yeah, you cut your your pool of tenants probably uh, in like half. Seventy five percent. Maybe that. Yeah, I mean, I, I every single one of our tenants has pets. I'll put it that way. So I started with being like, I don't want to have any pets, and now it's like all of our rentals have pets. Um, but you have a pets addendum, and there's a there's a fee that's non refundable, and there's little things we've done where like you know one of our houses we really probably needed to replace the carpet, but we had it clean, and I told the people I was like, hey, I'm willing to put in new carpet, but I know you've got multiple pets. If it's damaged at the end, like it's going to be on you guys. I'm happy to leave this carpet. And like when you guys leave, I don't care what this carpet looks like. Right. And so there's some, there's some kind of deal. And they were like, oh, that'd be great because people that have certain types of pets, they know their pets are going to do some damage to things. And so you can, the, my point on all of this is you can get very creative on how you rent, how you manage your properties and what you decide with your tenants. You need to put it all in writing and it should be written into the lease, but you could do whatever you want in theory. Right. So, so on all a lot of these things, I've gotten very creative and done things that like your property management guy, Greg, told me I couldn't do. Yeah. I think you've been very good at being creative with how to make sort of win-win situations for both us and the tenants. Yeah. Okay. So then once you get tenants, you found your tenants, you know, again, Zillow did the background check and the credit check. You should actually read those. Obviously you choose a tenant and that I wasn't really even going to talk about, but I'll just say briefly, I'm making a gut decision. Uh, usually things sort of work out. Like sometimes I'll have a couple tenants that seem good and then someone will drop out and I'm like, okay, well, great. You seem, you all seem great anyways. Sometimes I have actually had to choose who to go with, right? And I'm making a gut decision based on, well, there's a, legally, there's a lot of things that you can and cannot make that decision based on. But taking all of that aside, I'm making a decision based on the interactions I've had with everyone so far. And are they willing to sign a two-year lease? Are they willing, you know, like there's someone that we once talked to and she was giving me such a hard time about all these like little things early on. And I was like, we're just trying to schedule a showing. And this is like turned into a huge ordeal and like a lot of miscommunications and just a, a lot of back and forth. And I was like, man, I can't imagine you as a tenant. Like this is rough just trying to like schedule one meeting 
with you. And so there, there's just times where I'm like, trust your gut. This is like a job interview, right? Like, who do you want living in this thing that, um, and just like a job interview, there's legal rules about what you can and cannot factor in, which again, I'm not the expert on. So th- th- that's all written. There's a lot of documentation around that. And, and Zillow provides it for you also. I think you do an, a very good job with that gut feel portion of it, though. There's been times where even early in the process, a tenant, like, like you said, the example you gave of someone who's just very difficult to communicate with, and it's kind of a sign that they're maybe a tough tenant to deal with. And yeah. so you do a really good job with that. And I, I trust your gut a lot. You've you've gotten us just great tenants that we have good relationships with that take good care of their properties. Knock on wood, we've just never really had a bad tenant situation. And I know anything is possible. And if you stay in the business long enough, you probably will have some bad experiences. Yeah. But I think a lot of those can be avoided by spending some time up front to get the right tenant. I think yeah. there's sometimes this feel of we just got to rush and get someone in there. So we have rental revenue coming in. And, and that's true to some extent, obviously, but spending the time to get the right tenant and to kind of filter out the tenants, I think is just so, so key to having a good experience as a landlord and then to ha- having a good relationship with them. And the thing you touched on too with the gift too, I think I will say that we've we've toyed with writing a mission statement and we've never done it, but I think we've verbalized that obviously this is an investment for us and we want to make money from it, but we also want to ensure that we are providing a good experience for our tenants and that we're providing, you know, good, clean, safe places to live and treating our tenants kindly and, and in a way that they feel valued as tenants. So that's that's something that's important to us too. Yeah. And that we're on that note that we're super responsive. So the next thing I was going to talk about is, so you've got your tenants moved in, everything's great. Now you will have problems. Things go wrong. There's a water leak. The garbage is split. I mean, these are real problems for us. The toilet's clogged and like beyond a plunger clogged, like they can't plunge it. Those are the gross calls I don't like and where Greg is very helpful. There's, you know, the garbage disposal quit working. There's, you know, the power's out, all sorts of things. And so there's a leak in the roof. We've got all sorts of calls. Oh, there's squirrels in the attic. There's rats in the attic. There's rats in the house. Oh my gosh. So here's the thing. You're either making a choice in that moment to deal with it yourself or to call a professional, just like you are at your own home. So there's certain things where, you know, we'll get calls about stuff and we're like, oh, cool. We'll come over and we'll fix that. The washing machine's leaking a little bit and the intake hose, like, cool, that takes 10 minutes. We'll we'll be over. We're very quick and responsive. I mean, usually it's also a discussion of, cool, I can come anytime today or tomorrow. Do you want me to come when you're home or away? Because again, that's also the trick is I like to respect their space. I don't ever want to show up at their house like unexpected. Um, we actually could, we've talked about this before, Greg, we could do a better job of doing some like, you know, m- like quarterly or every other year, like once a year check-ins on the properties, which we don't tend to do because naturally we just end up there when something's wrong about once, once or twice a year anyways. But we, the things we can do ourselves, we're trying to do ourselves. The things that we need to hire a plumber or an electrician for, we call someone and we have, a, I keep a list of vendors, which is incredibly helpful and has been like clutch for me. I keep an or, a well organized in Google Sheets list of vendors. And there are people we've used on our own house, people we've used at our rentals. I try to make notes of like roughly what I've used them for. And it's more than one. You cannot rely on like one plumber because that plumber may be busy when you're having an emergency. And or contractors are a little tricky. Sometimes they just like don't call you back. They're busy. They, they just can't deal with another client that day. And so I, I will also see like a posting on Nextdoor or on a Facebook group in our neighborhood where someone's raving about a handyman or a plumber. When I see that, I'll write it down and I'll say like somebody in the neighborhood recommended. So I've got a list right now 
now of seven plumbers I can call. And sometimes when there's an emergency, I call three of them and I take whoever will show up. And I've got a list of like a few different handymans that we have used. And I've even got a couple that we've never used because I've, again, read that. So I keep that list of vendors. So I'm quick. When they call me, I've got to call out to somebody like five minutes later, usually, unless I'm tied up or we're we're there ourselves, one of the two. And then we also just keep a master spreadsheet of kind of key info about each property. We've had home warranties on some of the properties where we've had some older systems. And that's actually, I don't know, we could do like a whole episode on home warranties. I have mixed views on them. We won't get down that rabbit hole, but I, I could give or take them for what it's worth. And so we, so again, we're doing a mix of DIY fixing stuff ourselves and or calling professionals depending on the complexity of the job. And we're doing that stuff as needed. We cannot predict when it happens. Every now and then there's some kind of like longer term proactive stuff that we want to fix, but we're usually doing that between tenants if we can. Greg, right. that was me. What do you do? What do you do? Greg. Uh, I'm just kidding. I know you do a lot. Makes me think Tell of us. office space. What would you say you do? Greg, what would you say? I told say you, you I'm good with the customers. <laughs> but actually that's your job. So that's, I don't, yeah, you're I don't not, know. Yeah, yeah, you're not bad with the customers <laughs> for what it's worth. But what do you do, Greg? So primarily I do the financial work and the contractual work. So I I'd like to add that you've also been known to plunge a toilet or two. Sure. You do yeah. Pretty nasty DIY work. Well, yeah, we I share the... i give you a shout out. Yeah, we share the <laughs> DIY work. And Greg has done some shit jobs. And I, I mean, literal shit and then just kind of like gross shit jobs before. So shout out to you. Yeah. When I say spent... you got to have the stomach for it, that's what I mean. Spending time in basements, crawl spaces and bathrooms. That's always fun. But yeah, it's it's glamorous. So we share that. And then as far as the divided work, I, I focus on the finances. And because we created a, a separate LLC for our properties, and that's that's another thing to kind of touch on without going into too much detail. But if your properties are in a separate LLC and that LLC owns those properties and you keep separate books and separate finances, that provides you with a little more protection if you're ever, if there's ever a liability as a case where you're found to be liable for something. Theoretically, that will give you more protection than if you personally own the property. So to be clear, it gives you protection against your personal assets. So very literally, correct. if someone Someone Correct. were to sue yes. us and we were found liable for something that we didn't, you know, negligent for something in a rental property. Two things protect us. One is that LLC and the fact that these properties are set up and run as a separate business, which you'll talk more about, Greg. And that means they cannot come after our personal assets. They can't come after our personal home or my 401k or whatever. They can just come after what's under that LLC, which are our other rental properties. And some people with a lot of rental properties set up multiple LLCs and have small clusters of properties under each you know, small groupings of them. The other thing that protects us is we do have an umbrella insurance policy that also protects, gives us some additional kind of insurance if we were to ever get sued for something because you are at risk owning rental properties essentially. Right. No, those are great clarifications. And so in order to set that LLC up, I, part of the process I did is you, you request an LLC from the uh, Secretary of State of Georgia or whatever state you live in. In order to set that up, you also have to create incorporation documents. So basically some documents that lay out who, who the business owners are, how the property, how the business is set up. Again, you can find find templates out there to help with that. So that's all things that I did. And when you're operating your LLC as a separate business, you need to have financial statements for those. And so we do all of that ourselves as opposed to using a, you know, an accountant for any of that. And we file it with our personal taxes. So I keep I keep a PL for Wu Tech property.
properties. I do that quarterly and I have a PL for each individual property and then a consolidated PL for all of the properties that are part of the LLC. And just for those who aren't familiar with the term PL, that's a profit and loss statement. And Correct. it's literally tracking income that comes in, like rent that comes in every month versus what we're spending on taxes, the plumber repairs, we had to pay maintenance, for. Yeah, mortgage. Uh, interest, yeah, mortgage, principal, all of those various expenses fall into different places within the financial statements. So I do that in Excel. I don't use any special software for that. I have a pretty simple PL that I form that I developed. And one tool that we do use though is apartments.com. We use that for several things. One is for uh, receiving rent. So that's part of what Maggie does is, is set that up initially so that tenants can pay through apartments.com. And then that transfers to uh, our bank account. Uh, we have a separate bank account for this. It's another part of having separate finances that there's a bank account specifically for our company, our rental property company. And it's worth noting with apartments.com, as long as they have it auto-drafted out of a checking account, which most do anyways, versus putting on a credit card or something, which is not, it's hard to find a place that'll let you do that anyways. Um, there's no fee charged to them or to us through apartments.com. They, they make their money through listings and other things. And so right. there's a little bit of a delay. Like it does take over a week for the rent to get to us, but I'm fine with that. I could use Venmo or something or Zelle or something else. I like apartments.com because they can auto set up recurring payments on the first of the month. And that was something we talked about on the lease lately too, is putting in a requirement that not only do you have to pay through apartments.com, but that you have to have a recurring auto turned on in apartments.com. Right. Yeah. It's, it's automated. If they don't pay, we get a notification. If we get late payments, it's just much easier than, you know, remembering to look in Venmo. And and even for the for the tenant, I think it's just much easier when it's automated. Another tool that apartments.com has is an expense tracking tool. So we're able to input any expenses for the rental properties and then even assign it to one particular property or spread it out across all of the properties and even upload receipts. So now we've got a place where we have all of our expenses, uh, the date they were incurred, what category they fall under, whether it's uh, repairs and maintenance or cleaning or whatever the, you know, the tax category is, and then our receipts. And then they've got some nice tools. So when I do my P&Ls, I run reports from apartments.com. I can run an expense report as well as a revenue report. So quarterly, I can go in and export these nice Excel files that then I use to put into my P&L. So I know there are other tools out there. I toyed with Quicken. To me, it was so tedious and so much work to set up. It just, it was so much easier for me to just do it through Excel and have the freedom to tweak it as I saw fit. So that is kind of in a nutshell, how, how I do the uh, finances and we've really touched on the contractual piece. So I just, you know, create new agreements every time we have new tenants. And again, creating a new agreement is really taking a prior one, making any changes we want to make, getting it ready for signature. And then amendments are also pretty straightforward. But um, I enjoy when I worked, I, I worked a lot with our attorneys and paralegals on contract language and how that works. So I am by no means a lawyer or paralegal, but have enough familiarity with them that I feel pretty comfortable with that and kind of enjoy if we've got a, you know, an, a, a, an extension of the lease with certain, you know, we're going to do this. And it's kind of fun figuring out how to yeah. get that into an amendment and making sure it's captured and articulated very clearly in a contract amendment. 
So that's kind of the high level of of my my roles. Greg, you also do something where this is the kind of stuff where like we have very complementary skill sets with each other because I don't wouldn't want to like keep up with and do all this stuff. But you do like quarterly payments, which you you always tell me like you need to do. Like we shouldn't leave way just for like leaving money in a checking account versus moving it to investments or high yield savings is helpful. But you always tell me like for accounting purposes, like we need to do quarterly payout. Yeah, that's a good point. And since it's a separate business with a separate bank account, that money is in a is in a separate bank account as opposed to if you own the property as an individual, you might have that rental uh, income just flowing right into your personal account. So quarterly, when I do the PL, I will also do a distribution and record that in the PL to say X amount of dollars distributed back to the owners on this date. So that's how we do it. We do it quarterly. As Maggie said, you know, that money could either be sitting in a bank account earning zero interest, or we can disperse it back out to our personal accounts and invest that money in savings or however we choose to invest it. We've never actually had a time where we've needed to go back in and put more money into the company. It is theoretical that we could have some very large expense at yeah. some point, and in which case we would show that we made an investment back into the company. So I would say, you know, my philosophy is get that money out with as long as there's a buffer, but get that money out, get it invested, get that money working for you as opposed to just sitting in a bank account where it's not working for you. And we do have to keep a buffer in the checking account because the mortgages are usually paid on random days that aren't on the first. And then rent, there's like a week lag the time between when people pay rent and when the rent's like in our account and accessible. And so we, we're keeping a buffer in there for that reason also. And then you're filing the taxes at the end of the year, right? Right. With the LLC that we have, it can be filed with our personal taxes as a separate business. It doesn't need to be filed as a separate standalone tax return. It's filed as a individual business associated with our personal tax return. And we chose to go that route. We chose to set up the LLC as a sole proprietor LLC for that reason so that we could make our taxes a lot easier. So we have an agreement. It's like in one of our names, we made a decision to simplify it for tax purposes, but we could have set it up as, what would it be called? A partnership that would require... There's a number of different ways we could have set up the LLC in both of our names as a partnership, as a general partnership, as a family. I mean, there's a ton of different types of LLCs, but they all are more complex and require more complex paperwork and separate taxes, which we were trying to avoid to keep things more simple. Right. Well said. Thanks. I pick up a few things here and there from you, Greg. So could you, can you say easily how much we on average kind of quote make or profit at this time? Do you even want to? I don't think we need to. Well, here's the thing. Even if you could come up with that number right now, which is like, you could look at our quarterly payouts and then figure out like the taxes. I mean, it's just like a whole nother layer that add on to it at the end of the year. But like, you could look at last year and see what we actually technically profited. But what is confusing about that and doesn't help any of you to hear other than it's just like interesting. And this is, I feel like I talk about this with other angles on personal finance all the time is what we are making is all relative to obviously everything we talked about at the beginning of like how much rent you're getting, all that. But it's also how much we've got mortgage versus not. And the fact that we chose to pay off one property, we're making more off of that property, but it's not because it's any more in theory of a profitable property, right? It's because of decisions 
we've made about paying off debt on these properties and how much we put down versus how much is mortgage. And so us sharing that amount isn't going to mean anything to you. It's not going to be like a glimpse into how much you could make, right? It's just the actual financials and any deal are going to be very different based on what the rent is, how much money you put down, what your interest rate is. There's just so many different factors that make it unique to everybody. But the cool thing I will say about real estate and rentals in particular is that when you think about that, just at a very simple level, you mortgage a rental property, you get someone in there, you get some amount of rent. That rent is going to slowly go up over time, right? With the inflation increases, cost of living, everything else. Your 30-year mortgage is going to stay the same minus increases in taxes and insurance, which is a percent, usually a small percentage of your overall mortgage. And so we're already seeing the benefit of the fact that, yes, our taxes are increasing, but again, that's a percentage of the overall amount. But that mortgage is flat and we're seeing rent going up, right? And that's only in a few years. So imagine 10 years from now, how much your profit margin is increasing. And so that's what's kind of cool to see about rentals. And you have this appreciating asset where it's also worth more. So if you ever need or want to unload it, you've also got a lot more equity in the property than you had early on. Yeah, I agree. And and I think being in a market like Atlanta for us that keeps growing, people keep moving here. I think we feel pretty good that our assets will continue to appreciate. I mean, nothing's ever a sure thing in life, but I think we feel as sure as we do that the stock market will continue to, to grow over time. It'll have its ups and downs, but I think in 20 years, Atlanta is going to be a, a bigger city than it is today. And the housing that's closer in to the center of Atlanta is going to continue to grow in value. So I agree. It's it's pretty cool that you have cash flow in the short term, as long, and you may not, depending on how much your mortgage is. But in a good scenario, you have some cash flow that will grow along with an appreciating asset that at some point you can sell. And to me, that makes for a great alternative to just investing in the market. Again, we have a lot invested in the market, but it's nice to diversify that. There's something that on that podcast I just referenced earlier that I'll put a link in the show notes to with Jillian and Chad Carson. Jillian made a comment towards the end that I don't know if it was her personal thought or something that someone else told her, but there's something about spending it being easier to spend money that you make in retire in early retirement or retirement from rental properties versus from like having to sell off an investment. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Yeah, so and I was like, oh, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. I feel like it's money I've earned, like it's an income per se, right? It's not. It's something different about like, ooh, do I really want to sell off an investment right now? You know, the market's up or down or whatever. And so, yeah, I I've really enjoyed owning these properties with you, Greg, and and kind of you know running a little business with you. And and again, I think we we've both bring very different skill sets to the table, and they work very well together because we don't have a lot of overlapping interest, and you know we, we both have to like doing the things that we naturally fell into doing for our division of labor on this. And I think appreciate each other for the things that, that, that the other person does. You yeah. Know, I, I, like I said earlier, I uh, very much appreciate the way you handle a lot of things and and know that I would not would not handle them the same way, but mm-hmm. to the better is what I mean. You handle things in a way that that, that I am, am frequently very impressed with. Oh, thanks. And even though I like roll my eyes sometimes when you ask me for a receipt, I really appreciate all of the back end management you do on the financials and contracts and everything 
else. So good team. Go team. <laughs> okay. I mentioned that I would say a couple books. I'll put these in the show notes. But if you do want to learn more about rental properties and the purchasing process and what to look at and all that, I really like these two books. They're both by Brand. One's by Brandon Turner and one's by Brandon and Heather Turner. And it's the book on rental property investing and the book on managing rental properties. They have very clear names that tell you what the books are about. And I think they're really good starting points if you want to get into rental properties. And I personally think if you want to do something like this, you need to read some books. Like this is not something you just jump into on a whim. You should really go into it very thoughtfully. And I know we covered a lot of things. We could turn this into like five episodes. So we, we hit a lot of different things, but these are the things that we tend to focus on and spend our time on and, and our opinions on rental property stuff. I want to add on to your your point of doing some reading before you do this. And I think that is very true. There's a base knowledge you want to try to acquire before you start this. I also will say too, though, that don't feel like you have to learn it all before you do this. I think there's some base knowledge to get comfortable and to get started, but there's a lot that you learn as you go. And there's things we've had to learn. You know, when we were creating the LLC, I had to do this deep dive into well, what does that mean? What type of LLC do we want to do? How does that impact our taxes? And I've forgotten half of that. But at the time I made a, 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 a you know, we made an educated yeah, made decision it, yes, based exactly. on the research we did. So I think it's a balance of, you know, getting some basic learnings under your belt, but also at some point getting started and knowing you'll have to learn along the way, as opposed to feeling like I have to learn it all because, you know, you never will, or you may, but you may delay your initial investment far longer than you should if you feel like you've got to learn everything before you get started. I hope this was helpful, especially for the people who have been asking to hear more about rental properties. We appreciate you guys listening. We know your time is limited and valuable. We appreciate you spending some of it with us. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we always appreciate it. If you want to give us a written review on Apple Podcasts, and you can also leave us a review on Spotify, we really appreciate it. We also encourage you to share this episode with a friend or family member to encourage ongoing discussions about money. And not only can you subscribe, you should subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Please do that. It's really helpful for us and it makes sure that you get to enjoy the latest episodes of our podcast. If you have any thoughts or questions, we always love to hear from you and you can leave us a voicemail or text us at 404-981-3370 or hit us up on Instagram. And if we didn't hit certain elements of owning rental properties that you really want to hear about, let us know and we'll do a part two to this. Okay. Thanks guys. Bye, Greg. Bye, Maggie.